On today's episode of Beyond the Known, our guest is Alan Rupel, founder of Unity in Motion. Alan is a U.S. Navy veteran who served for over four years on the USS Seahorse, a nuclear attack submarine, where he completed a successful circumnavigation around the world, making it only the fifth submarine ever to do so. After serving in the Navy, he went back to school and graduated from UW-Whitewater with a degree in finance. From there, he went on to a successful 15-year career in management at Northwestern Mutual Life in Milwaukee while founding Unity in Motion in 2000 as a black belt in Okinawan Shito-Ru Karate. Glad I got that through in one piece. Alan, wonderful to have you on the program, sir. Thank you, sir. All right. So where to start? So much great information in that opening here. Let's start with the submarine. What is life like on a submarine? Well, imagine if you leave, let's say, seventh grade and you start eighth grade. And all that time in between, you're underwater the whole time. You never see the sun. You forget what day it is. The only reason I knew was because I had to keep the ship's log as the navigator. But it was an 18-hour shift. You worked six hours. You had six hours of watch. Then you had six hours to do housekeeping, or if drills came, you had to get up, or you had, if you had to qualify on the submarine. So that 18-hour cycle went on and on and on. And people would even forget what week it is. So what inspired you to join the Navy? Do you want the truth, or should I give you the... The, the whole truth the and whole nothing, truth, nothing but, but, the, but the, truth, the truth, Rupal. Okay, here it comes. I was 17 years old, and I was kind of on my own, upper, tougher upbringing. So I walked in the recruiter's office, and I said, hey, I think I want to join the Navy. And he says, what do you want to do? I said, I don't know. What'd you do? He said, I was on a nuclear submarine. I said, was it cool? And he goes, yeah. I said, well, then sign me up. That decision was four and a half years of my life based on that conversation. So I really, you know, I'd like to say I put a lot of thought in this because it sounds so great on the intro, but that's the truth. Okay. Well, we certainly appreciate the transparency on Beyond the Known. Working in the Navy, can you share with us some of the skills that you learned that helped you in your professional career? You know, to be honest with you, submarines are tough duty because you're in that enclosed space with 100 or so men for months at a time. And I mean, you have very little room. You, even when you sleep, you have to share racks. In other words, when I'm on watch, somebody else uses it. You barely can fit in. You're sleeping with food sometimes. You know, there's no, you have to be able to get along with people. And some of these people back when I were in had the choice between, well, prison and the military to try and straighten their lives out. So they weren't necessarily on the citizen track at the moment, shall we say. And you had to get along. There was nowhere to go. So you dealt with all different personalities. Plus, if you were new, you got picked on all the time and you had to take it. You had to take whatever it was because the argument was you had to prove you could handle the pressure. So you really learn how to be a member of a team or you don't survive. This may be a tough question on the spot, but as the host, I like to put people on the spot. Can you tell me would probably be your greatest Navy story? Well, most of it's classified right now. So believe it or not, it still is. So when we say the fifth known submarine, for instance, we cannot talk about any other type of Soviet sub or whatever. So I can't really get into most of the details of the actual missions because it's called a silent service for a reason. In fact, my wife always wants to know 
stories and I won't tell her of course and I said I, if I if I ever tell you a submarine story you better worry because I'm gonna have to kill you <laughs> well in that case I withdraw my question yeah, very you might quickly not want to go that route too much at this moment <laughs> All right. Well, with that being said, I was going to have my producer start to waterboard you, but we're just going to forget that. <laughs> I nah. can't confirm or deny we do that. <laughs> All right. Well, that just eliminates seven of my next questions. Thank you very much. Well, let's talk a little bit then about your career at Northwestern Mutual and Unity in Motion. Before we get into Unity in Motion, talk about your career at Northwestern Mutual. What did you do and how rewarding was that experience for you? Well, I had a various roles at Northwestern Mutual, which I think really prepared me to start my own organization, even though that's a large Fortune 100 company. I started as an underwriter, where, which is not always the, shall we say, the insurance financial representative's best friend, because we're the one they have to tell you you're not going to get your commission. But I underwrote disability for a while. Then I moved into a management role, and where I led a division of 23 people. And that's where the submarine really helped, even though, believe it or not, in this instance, all 23 were female instead of male. But it was the same teamwork principles and so on. It was a division that had its technology was behind. So we had to not only improve the technology, but we had a lot of long-term veterans who were used to their way of doing things. So I really had to use a lot of people management skills to get them to buy in. Then I was the employee relations person, the person who had to fire everybody. And Northwestern Mutual was famous for not you know, firing anybody at that time. So I, but there's always something. And so I had to deal with those issues and the emotions that come from the people of that and so on. Then I actually worked in their foundation for a while, which really got me connected to all the people doing the great work in Milwaukee. So I had various experiences. I had planned to stay there till retirement. It's a great company. And so it was only Uni Emotion that changed that. Well, before we get to that, because we definitely want to spend time learning more about Unity in Motion, sounds like you wore an awful lot of hats, NML. Good thing you got a big head for all those hats. Yeah. I used to have hair back then, too. <laughs> I think that's what happened to it. Back in the glory days. You did mention principles with respect to teamwork. What would you say are two or three of the most important principles as it pertains to effective teamwork? I think you have to uh, uh, get to know your team. That's a common thing, but I mean, really get to know what makes them tick. Where is their motivation? They need to see you that they need to see that you see them as a person too. That's number one. But then number two, taking that information, you want them to buy in the reason you're making them uncomfortable or that feels like you're making them uncomfortable is because you want to take them to the next level. And you're not going to get to number two effectively unless you get to number one. And I think we shortchange that sometimes. We focus on the result, we focus on the common goal, but we forget there's people that with lives and so on that that comes to them first. And when you can get that trust, you will get them to go to level two so much easier. You're a man with a rich background, lots of variety, lots of exciting things that you've done over the course of your career. I'm fascinated by your karate experience. As a father that has a seven-year-old and a five-year-old in karate, I have a new f appreciation for it, especially when they're kicking dad in the shins trying to try out their new moves. Let's start with the type of karate. I only thought karate was karate. Uh, call me naive or whatever, but talk a little bit about Okinawan Shito Ru. 
karate. What makes that type of karate distinct from some of the other types? Well, this one goes way back to the, this is more of the traditional martial art that goes way back to the Middle Ages when the ninja and all that were operating in Japan and secrecy and, and they had those, for lack of a better word, monasteries that they'd live in. But Shito means, the Shito is the style. So Shito-ru means knife hand style. So Japanese karate is basically 80% hands, 20% legs. That's more traditional. You get to Taekwondo, which came from Korea, so they're they're from different parts of Asia. They changed, you know, they work with their system as 50% hands, 50% legs. A lot of it's similar, but then they all put their twist on it. Some have become more commercialized through the states. Others have stuck to the more traditional. I've stayed with the more traditional. When we all know, even us karate greenhorns, such as myself, we know the black belt is the pinnacle. How long did it take you to earn the black belt? It took me about five years, you know, in between golfing. It was a great winter thing in Wisconsin. I mean, I can't, you know, it's great for self-esteem and discipline too. That's what, you know, we've lost that somewhat with the commercialization of the fighting. And I'm not putting any of the fighting down the UFC and so on. But everybody then watches it and just sees the violence. And it's actually the art of not fighting was what I was trying to teach. That if you feel so good about yourself, you don't have to fight would only be under absolutely necessary conditions to, to protect yourself. You don't have to prove anything to anybody because you know it already. And if you can take that out of martial arts, not how well you kick, block, or punch, you've hit the, the pinnacle. When you hit on two key words there that I want to talk about for a second, self-esteem and discipline. Yes. It would strike me that those are two traits that are lacking in society today. I think we have a, a number of individuals with self-esteem issues And we certainly have a number of individuals that lack a profound amount of discipline. So with that being said, would you recommend that most people, most Americans get involved in karate in some way, shape, or form to start honing those two traits? Yes. I'm not going to point anything out, but I caution if it's a guaranteed you're going to be a black belt and if you pay X amount of money and pay this, we'll guarantee you this. Be careful for that. That's commercialization. Or they got the biggest trophies on the wall and so on. That's all fine. But look for one that really focuses on developing that in the young, you know, that that self. And it's not a participation trophy. It's more like you have done the best you can do. And that's what we're rewarding. Because that's ultimately what they'll take with them. We've become a society that's too quick, too fast. And part of that is is, uh, social media. We don't want to wait any longer. So if you can, specifically for you, Alan, how has the discipline that you learn from martial arts translated into your everyday life? You know, sometimes work that you read my biography, and of course we only put always the great stuff in there, but the work itself can be hard. Poverty is grinding. It's dangerous. It's risky. Be it here, Pakistan, or wherever I'm going. It's not glorious. And if I don't have that self-esteem and that self-discipline to get through it, if I'm looking for something outside of me to give me the reward, it's, it takes too long. So I have to have it. So what, who I am must reflect in what I do, not what I do should not reflect who I am. And that's simple. But the simple basics are actually how we have to, re, I have to, and I believe everyone else should really live their lives because you won't last in the long term. You're looking for something from the outside that just doesn't come quick enough. 
Well, and moving on from karate, I understand that Unity in Motion, the organization that you're currently associated with, evolved from a karate class that met once a week, turned that into an all-encompassing program that now meets every weekday. Can you talk a little bit about Unity in Motion and what that organization is all about? Sure. Here's another one of those transparency things, okay? I didn't have any plans to actually start this. So I'd gotten a black belt in karate, and I it was married, but I didn't have any, we didn't have our children. And I thought, you know, this is a really good tool if it's done right. And I have to stress if it's done right. And I thought, you know, the kids that need it the most can't afford it. It's pretty expensive, as you probably know. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to start a free karate class for kids that can't afford it. And I ended up finding some space in the central city of Milwaukee. And I was just going to do that just a little free karate class for, and I wasn't even sure how long, just depending on time. And that's how it started 20 years ago. But when you get in there and you start to see what's really needed, you see, you know, I was, you had been around the world and been all these places. I never really had spent a lot of time in the central city of Milwaukee. Just what you see on the news is what you get. And I realized these kids are so far behind what is needed to actually live in, you know, we're doing a great job of educating our kids for the 20th century there, but this is the 21st century, so I think we're like a century behind. And so they needed so much more. The violence, the poverty, the gangs, the drugs are everywhere, you know, and it's just decimated that community. And these kids just have no role models, no way out. And any eight-year-old, as you know, seven, five-year-old, whatever, wants to do well, wants to be a part of something. It's a natural thing. And they just didn't have those options. So they needed a lot more than a karate class. So we just started adding things. We'd add tutoring. We'd add mentoring. You know, just kept adding until we, scholarships, all this. And all of a sudden, eight years later, I'm looking up, and it's a corporation, and I'm working full-time at Northwestern Mutual. I'm paying everybody. I'm not taking any money, but I'm running out of time you know, the time and the needs that were there. And that's where it evolved into this long-term commitment that we follow kids from elementary school all the way through college. One of the things that fascinates me most about Unity in Motion is you've really turned the traditional model of the nonprofit around. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. And I certainly think we need a lot of traditional nonprofits, but nonprofit traditionally starts as a program. I'm a drummer, I'm a dancer, I'm a martial artist, I'm a tutor, and I want to help somebody, in this case, kids. So I go, I'm focused on my program, right? I'm a martial artist, and that's my passion. I looked at that, and I said, that's great. We need a lot of that. But what's really missing here is the long-term relationship for these children to get them through. No one's going to tell their children, hopefully, that's a good parent. Like, well, I got you in volleyball, and I got you in uh, karate, so I'll talk to you in a year. You know, you'd say that's not good parenting. Well, sometimes with the issues these kids are facing and their families, they don't get that attention. So I said, it's the relationship. It's that constant, somebody who cares, somebody who pushes them. And what motivates a fourth grader might be a martial arts belt, but it might not motivate a high schooler. So we have to make this relevant. So I said, you know what, let's turn this around. What's important here is the relationship. And any program or service we add or change needs to foster that relationship. It needs to build it and needs to keep it. Our success is not how well we teach karate or, or pay high schoolers now for jobs. It's how are we building that relationship and that constant and helping them drive towards their goals. So we redid our goals, we did our business model, every, our organizational model to focus on the relationship, not the programming. The programming feeds that relationship. 
Well, just like you, Alan, we are extremely passionate about nonprofit organizations here at the Star Group. I know Unity in Motion is an approved charity for our Community Stars donation program. We send out tens of thousands of dollars a year to wonderful nonprofits such as yourself. So we certainly appreciate all the good work that you're doing in the community. Our listeners also tend to be charitably inclined as well. So some of them might be interested in starting a nonprofit. Maybe they've already started one, but they want to grow it. They want to scale it. As somebody who's done that, could you describe the process of growing a nonprofit, including some of the ups and downs that you experienced along the way? Well, I'm going to qualify that with this is a very tough time, and I'm going to tell you why. Because the world's changed in many ways, as we know. If I said to you, let's start a family drugstore and we're going to situate it between Walgreens and CVS, you'd say, well, good luck on that one. You might be able to last a generation if, if your friends are coming in. But, and that's kind of what Motion did. We're going to, you know, so the world of nonprofit is going to, is mirroring the world of business in so many ways, because it really is a business. It just doesn't take its different mission. So I would say before you start, get with a successful one. Look for a high quality one. If your passion is dancing, look for a high quality one to work with first. Because even the funders now, which started out funding a lot, well, first the government used to fund a lot of nonprofits and the political winds have changed on that. You're not gonna get people to raise taxes to give that anymore. So now we flooded that market. We've taken away, these nonprofits that were getting government grants are now flooding the market looking for philanthropic grants. Well, that's actually going less because foundations are closing more and more. And so everybody's now competing for same or less dollars with many more nonprofits than we had before because the government was a big issuer. So before you go out and start on your own, you're gonna spend a lot of time just trying to get the money and you're not, the reason you're there will be gone often. So get with somebody you know that's high quality, not somebody low quality, somebody high quality, and then work with them and then see if you want to branch out from there. Were there any moments as you were building Unity in Motion that you kind of stopped, looked yourself in the mirror and said, this ain't going to work? Just weekly. (laughs) (laughs) Once in a while. Once in a while. (laughs) You know, there's... It's scary times because the funding especially can be tough because, you know, you like summer is usually a drought, you know, people tend to give year end. Then, you know, 08 crash came, the markets crashed, the pandemic. Oh, there's always something, but it tends to, if you're smart, we've been always really fiscally smart. I've always tried to, what really helped me, and I think the organization of the emotion was my business background. So often social organizations have great people who want to do great things, but they really, that's their focus. And they're not thinking about it like you have to generate a business. And so I was able to bring that business model and that idea into social organization, which made us run much more efficiently, which in turn then funders look at and go, ooh, that's great. Our money is going to be used wisely. So it's sort of an up circle if you're really that way. You can, so we survived as that quote, mom and pop drugstore because of that issue. I think more than anything. And we always, we never ever got away from relationship to programming again. We never mission drift. We never got, sometimes it held back our growth, but I never mission drift. It wasn't like, well, they're giving money for this. Therefore we should tell them we're doing that or change our model so we can get it. That's a short-term win for a long-term loss. 
Yeah, it's pretty profound stuff. I mean, of all the things that you could be doing, Alan, you're a very talented guy, big breadth of background experience, lots of passions, just listening to you talk. There's a lot of stuff that you obviously care about. Of all the things you could be doing right now, what motivated you to dedicate your life to serving Milwaukee youth? Well, again, transparency. That wasn't what I was planning to do. It's where I felt the most purpose. So I already felt, like I was talking earlier, I felt good about where who I was and what I was doing, and I was happy with Northwestern Mutual. It wasn't like, I got to get out of the corporate world like some people. It, it, it was a great place to work. I mean, it's a job. People are people. You know, I learned that in the submarine. doesn't matter. You know, you, you have to learn to get along with people. But when I hit there and I started to, to see these kids connect, and I started to see their lights go on, and I started to see them, and I thought, you know, we don't have enough of this, and I'm enjoying this. I get to goof around. I get to you know talk silly. I get to be myself. And you and, don't strike me as a guy that likes to goof around, by the way. No. <laughs> I haven't picked that up yet. Yeah, not yet. <laughs> you know, no 10 committees to go through every time I make a decision. So it was kind of nice. <laughs> but I was responsible. You know, if it worked, it worked. It didn't, it didn't. So of, with Unity in Motion, you guys have had a very successful organization for 20 years now. Lots of people have gone through your program. You've had a lot of experiences, probably an awful lot of stories as well. Can you share a story or two about a particular child that made a profound impact on you? Well, we just had one of my first families in karate was at a place on it really 53206 zip code, 9th and, or 11th and Concordia, very the most economically depressed and highest crime rate in Milwaukee. I started a little karate program in the basement there at a place called Family House. And one of the first families that came in was three girls. And uh, one of them was in first grade. And by eighth grade, we had figured out a way to put her in university school. And she thrived. And she ended up graduating with honors, but always felt a little different. We hadn't really looked at the social aspect of it. And so when it's not just fitting in at university school, it's when you go back home. Now, the neighborhood starts to look at you different. You think you're better. You're thinking, so she really struggled with all this, but she made it. And then the family issues took over. So she was in college, and her older sisters, one was in the military and so on, she ended up having to watch their children and dropped out. And the people that were backing, oh, this was a mistake. Oh, for crying out loud, why we put her to university school or have her drop out? And I was like, these things take time. We don't give up. Well, we talked her into going to MATC. Then she got her LPN. She went back again and just graduated as a RN, is now employed full-time working on the pandemic as a registered nurse. Now, that looked like we were going to, miss out too many issues but if we stuck with her kept mentoring her kept the communication lines open yeah it took a little longer than we had hoped and she didn't get to go to the ivy league school that they, most people from university school look at and she felt like she was a failure for a while because of that but we kept with her and now she is rn supporting herself still helping her sister's children and working full-time in this pandemic yeah it's a great story and i, I bet that's got to make you feel good inside yes it sure does but it sure was tough along the way and you're dealing with a lot of people who want to bail like forget it this ain't working let's you know no 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 you got to take the long-term view not the short absolutely what would you say right now alan are the biggest needs for unity in motion as an organization and if one of our listeners to this conversation today wants to get involved how do you recommend they do that 
Well, I don't know if you knew this, but I stepped down executive director for after 20 years. We merged in a program called Camp Kindred. And these were, well, what started in my mind was I was already starting to get children of the children I started with in Unity in Motion. So we're making a generational promise. We say once you're in, we're going to see you through post-secondary education. We have had just had our first master's degree graduate. And then I thought, you know, I'm making another generational promise. I'm a generation older. They're a generation younger. And so I met this group called Camp Kindred, and they were just doing great work. Tom Kramer was the leader of it. And they, their philosophy, in which I totally get buy into, is now we have to hit the segregation issue now when they're young. You know, a lot of corporations have diversity and inclusion initiatives, but people's ideas are set, be it race, sexual preference, be it whatever it is, they're set. And you have to undo that. And there's only so much you can do as an adult to undo things. We need to get that right away at eight. Everybody's included. No matter your orientation, no matter your race, no matter your socioeconomic status. So we're bringing in a camp of 40% Caucasian, 40% African-American, 20% Latino to mirror the census in Milwaukee. And they're going to be best friends starting at eight years old. They're going to work together each year. And by the time they graduate, not only are those stereotypes nonsense, but now they have contacts. You know, we know business and contacts are so important. Well, they grew up together. They're best friends. If this person's in the African-American community and that person's going to university school, they're going to help each other out because that's what friends do. And now when you have a diversity and inclusion initiative, you don't have to unlearn anything. You already know it. You're like, what kind of nonsense is this? Right? I learned that when I was eight. I saw that was nonsense when I was eight. And so that's the direction it's going. So we merged in Camp Kindred. I'm stepping back as executive director to let the next generation take over. Now, I'm still there, senior, doing all the things, but I'm not running the day-to-day operations like I used to. That frees me up to do other projects I'm working on. Do you care to talk about any of those other projects you're dabbling in right now? Sure. I'm starting a school in Islamabad, Pakistan. Long story how I got there. So I was asked to speak in the Congo, country the Congo, poorest, most war-torn country. So I got there, I went through Uganda and Rwanda, and I went and I got into the Congo, and I started to give a speech at a university. And the Congo is the most backward place you ever, I mean, not only is there no public education, no healthcare, no transportation, but if you won't even want to start a school, you have to pay the government. It took me seven bribes to get in the country and seven quick ones to get out because I was there during the Ebola crisis, which I wasn't worried about because there wasn't a lot of Ebola, but the local rebels thought, here's a Caucasian in the middle of this, you know, area, and I'm giving a speech, and they thought I was with the World Health Organization. And at that time, they were very angry at the World Health Organization because they felt they were being exploited. So they put a death threat on me of $5,000 and gave me four days to get out of the, you know, if we didn't pay it in four days, they're going to shoot me. So I stayed three, and then I, we snuck out on the fourth day. And fortunately, there's only two roads out of Congo. They go, they're very treacherous and you can only go 10 miles an hour. And we had to choose which road. And so we chose this one road, which is shorter, but more treacherous. And we made it to the border after four and a half hours to go 40 miles, 47 miles or whatever it was. And we get to the border at Uganda and that, I don't speak, but there was a translator and he said, oh, did you take this certain road? And we said, no, we took this other road. They go, good. The rebels attacked the other road of a, what they thought was the United Nations truck took five hostages, shot one in the head to show them in business, tortured the other four, couldn't get anything, so they shot them all in the back of the head. That would have been us. 
So I was going to start a school in Congo, but I decided that's probably not a good idea. But I always tell my wife, if you know, if, if you really need money, I still I'm worth five grand. How many people know what they're worth, right? <laughs> I'm worth five grand. After all this, I'm worth five thousand dollars. So I can always fund a nonprofit through me. But so to make a long story short, the person there that we fled with was from Pakistan. He was the only non-Congolese, and he goes, "Well, Islamabad." And I was like, hey, I always wanted to go to Islamabad. I want to see where Osama bin Laden was killed. So uh, I thought it would just be interesting. So I went to Pakistan in Islamabad, and I got, did all the contacts and everything. And I went through the country, and I gave a speech in, at a university in Lahore, outside of Lahore. It was actually Farukabad. And I even went into Taliban-controlled. I have pictures of this. Taliban-controlled country, just to see it, the tribal areas. But I look like, you know, I'm totally dressed like I belong there. And even got to go to, and I couldn't talk about this till I got home, but Abbottabad, where the SEAL team was assassinated Osama bin Laden. And what was amazing about that, by the way, is the military academy is one minute drive. Now, in the movies, it looked like a big country area. Uh-uh. It's the middle of a city. He had a big compound, so there was open space. But it's right in the middle of the city. So right next to it is a mosque. So I went in the mosque dressed up, you know, and uh, like, so I, I fit in. And we're talking to a translator with one of the locals, and they said, oh, we saw him all the time in here. He would come in, real tall guy. You know, everybody knew who it was. And so now, though, you can't talk about that there because the line is, I don't know if, how many believe it or if they actually believe it, that he was never there. It's all American made up. But the joke was, I'm the first American back since the SEAL team left. <laughs> but the long story short, Pakistan is a very more fundamentalist Muslim country. And so 98%, 95 to 98% identifies Muslims. If you are not Muslim, you really can't go to public school. Technically you can, but you won't be passed. All you need is one instructor that just doesn't like you and it happens all the time. So you have to pass a sixth grade exam to move on in education. You have to pass an eighth, tenth, something like that. But you never get past sixth grade exam if you even were lucky enough to go to school. So what they've done to non-Muslims and Christians especially is they wall them in slums. And the running water is actually the sewage. There's no food. It's no you know, electricity, things like that. And these kids never go to school. So this cycle just continues. And so I said, you know what, you know, instead of just, and even from an economical point of view, if you want to kill a terrorist, it costs $70,000 in bombs and military. I mean, you add that number up, right? And we're not even talking moral, spiritual here. Just add the economics up. It's ridiculous. So what happens is, and I went to these madrasas, if you're familiar with the madrasa, and it's a fundamentalist school where all they do is cite the Quran all day. That's the only thing they teach. Their version of it. Quran is actually very peaceful, but their version of it. And then they make them suicide bombers. So, because they'll feed them. I mean, if your children are starving to death and somebody's going to feed them, you're going to get a high percentage. They're going to go, you, they can go to that school, right? Because they'll eat. So I said, the problem is let's try and hit this from the front end rather than the back end. Let's educate them. And at some point, they can make the decision for themselves. So we're starting a school called Unity and Hope, which is not actually affiliated with Unity in Motion, but it's going to take kids starting in preschool, kindergarten, and first grade. And we were supposed to open March 15th. Had it all set, all funded, everything, but the pandemic now has held things up. The latest I heard is now maybe September 1st we can open. And then each year we're going to add a grade. So when that next grade goes to second grade and they all move up one, we're going to backfill with preschool. And we're going to take them all the way through. And so that's the one project for sure. And then possibly another summer camp of 
through St. Marcus Lutheran next summer when the pandemic's over for kids too and follow them. So I'm not retiring. I'm just shifting gears a little. I wish we had more time. Boy, oh boy. <laughs> all the questions I've got in my head and all the stories I'm assuming you could tell. That is really great stuff there, Alan. So Alan, after the Navy, you went on and joined Northwestern Mutual, which for anybody living in southeastern Wisconsin, we certainly are well familiar and well-versed with that organization. What made you want to make that switch from the Navy to Northwestern Mutual specifically? Well, I had never, you know, as I said in my earlier story, I don't think I had a lot of intentions of making the Navy a long-term career, considering I told the recruiter, I don't know, what do you do? So when I kind of figured I'd get out, you know, going underwater for 20 years, just at that point, if for 87 cents an hour, you know, I give credit to people that do it, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. So when I, after I got my degree in finance and the job offers started coming, I actually worked for Manulife first, Manulife out of Canada. And then when Northwestern Mutual had an opening and a friend of mine worked there and he, I applied and got it, that was the place I wanted to be. I knew it was stable. I knew it was ethical, you know, slow and very corporate at that point. But, you know, I believed in the values and I knew it was a stable career. We have a diverse audience here for Beyond the Known, including managerial individuals, C-suite executives, etc. Several of these individuals might be in a management position for the very first time. When you, in Northwestern Mutual, assumed a managerial position, was that an easy transition for you? And what kind of lessons did you learn as you went from really just worrying about yourself to worrying about this entire team now? Well, first, I'd say they're separate skills. Remember that first off. Just because you're a great producer or you're a great worker doesn't mean necessarily a great leader. So you have to look at those two things as separate at times because not everybody works the same way you do and they don't have the same skill set and so on. And they're not necessarily going to be able to do it the same way you do. The biggest challenge, I think, is expectations. You're going to have people on top of you that are responsible for results. They're responsible for results and they should be. But you need the time to, what I was talking about earlier, really to get to know your folks and what drives them and what's important to them, and then leading them to their goals that match with the organizations. That takes time. And some people on top will be like, well, skip that part. Let's get the results. You know, and you'll be tempted to shake shortcuts. And those shortcuts might even work in the short run. But I think in the long term, you may be shortchanging yourself, not only in results, but also in job satisfaction and why you did it to begin with. So... You're going to have to balance both of those. Alan, I got to tell you, on behalf of everyone here at Beyond the Known, this has been a fascinating conversation. I says, I said, I wish we had more time, but certainly appreciate the conversation. Thank you for the insightful dialogue, and it was a pleasure to have you in the studio here today. Thank you so much. Can I add one thing since this isn't solicited by you guys? Please. Marco Brasino is the most amazing financial rep I've known simply because he, he really does not try to give you something you don't need. That was so refreshing. My wife worked at Northwestern Mutual the whole time. She's like, he actually said we shouldn't do this. And he could have got commission. And I said, yeah, he really, so I think in the long term, any chance I get, I always recommend him for that reason. Only for that reason. He actually looked at the needs and said, no, you're good there. You, we can't beat that. And he meant it. And I'm like, talk about pressure, especially under commission to serve, to sell. That he's never taken that. And I think so, you know, he's one of those people that I think will do well long-term and your organization do long-term because you're taking the long-term view. Let's skip that sale, but let's build a loyal customer that will trust me. He did it. And so I always recommend him. And not, they did not solicit this at all, but this is why I was very impressed with your organization because of what that one thing he, that 
seems like a small thing, but it's everything. Well, we really appreciate you saying that, Alan. We are blessed to have Marco in the Star Group family. He's an excellent example of who we are as an agency. And we're also blessed to have you and your wife as members of our professional family as well. We are so grateful. Thank you for saying that. We appreciate that. Not only personally, but for Unity Emotion as well. Alan, lots of great stuff going on here. The nonprofit endeavors that you're doing are extremely inspiring. And I'm sure a number of our listeners might be asking themselves, well, how do I get involved? How do I support? How do I help this? So if somebody's interested in moving forward with Unity in Motion or Unity in Hope, I should say, the school that you're going to be starting in Pakistan, how do they get involved? What can they do? Well, I think the common denominator in the link is the star group here. And so I know that we're one of your few select charities, and we're so grateful for that. But I think you can find our contact information through there. And feel free to email me, Facebook, look up Union Motion on Facebook, message. I check it all. I'm in LinkedIn, too, Alan Rupel on LinkedIn, and I would be more than happy. There are so many opportunities we can find for you that match your interests, your skills, your risk tolerance. We won't put you at any risk. And you can feel some of the the satisfaction that comes from changing Milwaukee the way it needs to be. Podcasting from the Star Group, home of the iconic Dressable Lions. This is Beyond the Known, the podcast that takes you a step beyond what you know about business. I'm your host, Paul M. Newberger, president of the Star Group.
Thanks for listening to Beyond the Known with Paul M. Newberger. If you like our show and want to know more, check us out at stargroup.com. That's S-T-A-R-R-Group.com slash podcast. We're also available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.